Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. With life getting harder and governments doing so little about climate change, it's no surprise that support for capitalism isn't what it used to be. The right-wing Canadian organization, the Fraser Institute, did a survey in 2022, and it reports that the view that capitalism is the ideal economic system is affirmed by only 52% of people in Canada, 58% in the US, and 45% in the UK. And no surprise, if you look at uh, people aged 18 to 34, it's just 39% in Canada and also lower in the US, 52% who affirm that. Now, we could say a lot about what's wrong with uh, surveys and what we don't capture when we take snapshots of opinion about abstract statements like that. Uh, I think the basic point is still quite clear. Uh, Many defenders of the system just aren't confident in the way that they once were for good reason. And in general, we also see that sympathy for some kind of idea of socialism is also up when you look at surveys. On the other hand, though, when you look at the left and you look at the idea of commitment to fighting for a systemic alternative to capitalism, for an entirely different way of organizing society, rather than a regulated capitalism with social reforms, which some people dress up uh, using the term democratic socialism, that uh, commitment is still quite weak. And I think at the heart of that problem is the belief that markets, whatever their defects, are still the least bad way of producing most goods and services and getting them to people. So we really need to talk about markets and about capitalism. And now 2023 happens to be the 30th anniversary of the publication of the excellent book Against the Market, Political Economy, Market Socialism, and the Marxist Critique by David McNally, who's my guest on this episode. David's the editor of the socialist journal Spectre, which I strongly encourage listeners to subscribe to. And he was on Victor's Children back in episode number nine, Demystifying Dialectics, which uh, also happens to be the episode of the podcast with the most listens to date. So welcome to Victor's Children, David. To get us started, can you sketch out the history of markets and how capitalism is different from pre-capitalist societies where markets existed? Yes. Uh, Thank you, David. And thanks for the invitation to have this conversation. Markets are millennia old. All kinds of human societies that were not market regulated. And that's a term you're going to hear me use a number of times. All kinds of societies that were not market regulated used markets at the margins of economic life, by which I mean you would have agricultural communities and societies, for instance, that might produce more grain than they needed. And they knew that across some body of water were people who pressed olives into olive oil. And they might decide on a meeting place, which became known as a market, where grain would be exchanged for olives or olive oil. That's the use of market exchange to diversify the goods of life. 
to get goods produced in one environment transmitted to another environment. And that, as I say, has gone on for thousands and thousands of years, long before capitalism emerged in the world. But most of those societies involved people who we would loosely describe as peasants. That is to say, households of people with plots of land of their own. They didn't necessarily own that land in any legal sense, but they had the enduring right to use it. These were communal rights, rights rights that were recognized by the community. And so these were people producing on the land most of the goods and services that they needed. They produced basic foodstuffs. They could gather wood as heating fuel if they needed it. They could fish in local rivers and lakes. They could use wood to build their own furniture and even perhaps parts of their own dwellings. So most of what they used in everyday life didn't come through the market. It came directly as products of their own labor. They built their own housing, maybe with the energies and labor of their neighbors. They would take turns helping to build one another's places. Uh, And anybody who's lived in any kind of agricultural environment in the likes of Canada will know about barn raising, where whole communities came together to build a barn uh, in the expectation that when they needed that kind of work, that kind of support from their neighbors, that would be available. So I, I say all of that to underline the fact that in most societies, markets have been on the margins of economic life, and the majority of people have lived off of their own labor, the food, shelter, clothing, and so on that they produced for themselves. Now, this does not mean that those societies were idyllic in any way. Often they were exploited by rich landlords, by states that taxed them, and so on. But they were not what the late Ellen Mason's Wood described as market dependent. And that's a really important distinction when we move then to talk about capitalism. Because capitalism is a society in which our survival, in which human reproduction, social reproduction, is regulated by the market. Put simply, you get what you can buy. The vast majority of people don't own land. They can't grow food for themselves. They have to go to the supermarket or some kind of store to buy food. The vast majority of people don't have access to the materials or the land with which and on which to build their own housing. So they have to go into the market as renters or buyers of commodities called housing, apartments, homes, condos, and so on. You'll notice that what I've said in both of those cases with respect to food and housing is they don't own land of their own, land on which to produce food, land on which to build their own housing. Capitalism emerges in a society that has broken the bond between people and land, the bond that characterized all human societies in their majority until the rise of capitalism a few centuries ago. Capitalism can only emerge in a society in which that bond between people and land has been broken for millions and millions. And that bond was broken by use of force. People were driven off their land. They were dispossessed of it. And I won't spend a lot of time on all the social processes in which that took place. In England, it's famously 
associated with the enclosure and privatization of land. But this took place over several hundred years, so that for the first time in human history in England by the late 17th century, the majority of people were landless. As a result, they now only had one means of survival in the economic world, and that was to sell their ability to work, their capacity for labor, or what we sometimes call labor power. And so a true market society where human survival is organized through the market only emerges once that powerful bond, that enduring bond between people and land is broken. And that's what happened in first in England. It then became a European and North American norm. And of course, it has become an increasingly global norm today. For the first time in world history, the majority of people don't live on the land, for instance. And all of this is a transformation of the last 20 or five or 30 years. Uh, that the majority of people no longer live on the land on the planet. And so in capitalism, unlike a society where markets are at the margins, you go and trade some of your leftover grain for some olives or some olive oil. Unlike that marginal presence, the market becomes central. And for the vast majority of people, the centrality of the market means that unless they can find a buyer for their ability to work, they cannot get wages, and wages are the means of buying the goods of life, food, shelter, clothing, recreational goods, educational goods, and so on. And this means, in other words, that what we call the labor market is foundational to capitalism. And this is why we sometimes say, and I think correctly, that capitalism pivots on the commodification of human labor power. That is, it turns our capacity to work into a commodity to be bought and sold on the market. And that was not true in societies where households largely worked for their own purposes while also being exploited by having to pay rent and taxes to the ruling classes. So the idea of the centrality of the labor market the market and the human ability to work, our capacity to labor, is what distinguishes capitalism. And once that becomes the case, then you can say that the market regulates economic life, that it is this, the mechanism of human social reproduction. Without participation in the market, we can't survive unless somebody helps us out in one way or another. And we can talk perhaps later, about when social programs and the like uh, enter the picture. But capitalism is a society whose economic mechanism is the market. The market governs all social economic relations between people and things. And that's unique in human history, and it's something really only of the last few centuries. Thanks. Perhaps could you pick up um, on this question of the the creation of markets and human labor power, and just say a few words at least about the, the consequences for how we see ourselves and our relationship to the rest of nature and so on uh, that flow from the commodification of our labor power. Yes. And, and here, the notion of capitalist forms of alienation, it, this is really decisive to making sense of this. Marx describes 
the labor that we do in a capitalist society as alienated labor. And what he means by that is that it is not labor that is in any way self-directed. It is not, going back to my earlier example, households of people getting up earlier in the day and saying, okay, first thing we milk cows, then we go out to the fields and fertilize them and so on. It is instead labor that is done not to feed shelter and clothe oneself and one's household members. It's labor that's done to produce commodities that go into alien hands. When I work on an assembly line producing cell phones or laptops or automobiles, I don't take any of that home. None of the goods that we produce belong to us. That's the understanding of the wage contract. I work for others. Those others pay me a wage, but they keep all the goods whose production I contribute to. And this structure of alienated labor depends upon that prior alienation that I was describing, the alienation from the land. People had to be separated from, dispossessed of, and alienated from land in order to turn them into wage laborers, people selling their labor power in the market. So now we have a twofold structure of alienation. People in modern society are disconnected and alienated from land. They're disconnected and alienated from the products of their own labor. They don't take home the cell phones, laptops, loaves of bread, and so on that they produce. And they're alienated from the process of labor itself. It's not something that has any degree of self-direction. There is a battery of officials, foremen, supervisors, managers, and so on, who dictate what you'll do in the course of your day. The nature of the process of labor, the kind of technology that's being used, the conditions where you're doing the work, and so on. And then finally, Marx pointed out, this structure also tends to alienate the people who are working from one another. Now, he notices that there's also a counter tendency to cooperate, but alienation and cooperation among those who are working um, is a very dynamic and contradictory thing. It's unlike the barn raising party that I described, where people essentially come together with collective goals and say, let's put up this barn. Instead, they're also pitted against one another by the structure of domination within the labor process. So what this means foundationally is that human beings are alienated in capitalism from the land and from their own creative activity, their own productive activity. To be human is to be a creative producing being. It's definitional of being human, that we interact with the, with the world with a set of goals that we're trying to realize. That capacity, those creative energies are essentially hijacked to alien purposes within capitalism. My creative energies are used to produce commodities or services for somebody else for purposes of a certain structure of corporate power enriching itself off my labor. So my life 
feels alienated. My life activity feels foreign and alienated, estranged from me. And central to all of this is that living relations, processes, and things get treated as inert, as dead, as commodities. My own living labor gets commodified, turned into a thing for sale. It deadens, or to use the more technical term, it reifies, turns into a thing, something that is living. Similarly, the living natural environment, the ecosystem and biosphere around us gets commodified, turned into a set of things that are private property for exploitation by large multinational corporations. So we're inserted into an alienated relationship to ourselves and an alienated relationship to the natural environment around us. This, of course, is hugely problematic when we need to confront the incredible damaging toll that capitalism takes on the natural environment. Because it essentially, just as it depletes humans of their life energies, capitalism depletes nature of its self-sustaining, self-reproducing ecological capacities and energies. As Marx famously said, capitalism destroys the two foundations of wealth, living labor and the land, nature and humans. And so, yes, the, the ecological effects are not random. They're systematic. And it has to do with this structure, the double structure of alienation and commodification. To commodify something It must be alienated from its living reality. It must be quantified, measured, treated as a set of saleable articles. And that's as much true for the natural environment, which is chopped up, commodified, and sold off, as it is for the way that our living energies are chopped up, commodified, and sold off day after day, week after week, year after year. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Karl Marx, uh, because in Against the Market, you write, and I'll quote here, uh, that Marx's socialism was simultaneously anti-statist and anti-market. Marx systematically engaged with and rejected the idea that the market could serve as a central mechanism of socialist economy. And this, this rejection was underpinned by a serious and profound argument about the nature of commodities, money, and the market. So I've got two questions here. The first is, what was Marx's argument about and against markets? beyond what you've already said. And who was he arguing with in his own time? Mm-hmm. Yes. So th- the argument about markets is really ultimately around this question of how might human beings overcome these deep structures of alienation that I've been describing? It's too often forgotten that in Marx's earliest economic writings of 1844, The central theoretical innovation is the concept of alienated labor. And Marx makes alienated labor the index, the expression of what is most deeply wrong with a capitalist society. It is the alienation of human capacities from human beings. And the market is an expression of alienated social relationships. Because essentially, what the market is saying is that every form of human social cooperation is flawed if it is not organized by the competitive pricing mechanisms of the market. 
This is why, for instance, capitalist states that emerged through settler colonization, like Canada, the United States, Australia, South Africa, and so on, these settler colonial states worked over time to extinguish indigenous communal and cooperative social practices and forms of labor. I mean, they were explicit about things like the Pacific Coast potlatch ceremony, which was essentially a ceremony devoted to the sharing of goods and the sharing of wealth. Uh, Canadian officials described this as unacceptably communist. Uh, These practices had to be eliminated. And they had to be eliminated because they circumvent the market. They undermine the market. The exchange of goods as a form of social sharing can't be quantified and priced. You can't have a private corporation profiting off such a communal activity. And so at the heart of the alienation of the market is the breaking of all of these communal practices. They're undermining so that rather than human communities deciding for themselves how wealth will be produced and distributed, the market ultimately allocates. And by the way, David, if any of our listeners sort of look at basic introductory economics textbooks today, they'll discover this idea of the market as allocator, as resource allocator, very central early on. The market allocates because of the so-called efficiencies of the pricing system. And so at the heart of market economics is human alienation. The idea that all of our activities and all of the resources from the natural environment that we use in the course of producing and reproducing our lives are to be quantified, priced, and quote, allocated by market mechanisms which is why if you don't have enough money for food, doesn't matter that you need it, you can't afford it. It's what economists like to call effective demand. There's the need for food, which is universal and human. And then there's those who have the effective demand for food because they have money in their pockets. And the same goes for housing or any other forms of social wealth. And so Marx was deeply concerned that human alienation could not be overcome through an alienated mechanism. The market, by definition, alienates us. It pits me as a seller of labor power. I want that job. You may be applying for it too, but it's in my narrow market interest to get it. And we have no mechanism by which we might say, let's see if we can both do this work rationally in ways that would allow us to meet our needs. That's not available to us. We need to compete for this particular job, just like every firm producing cell phones, laptops, loaves of bread, cars, and so on, is competing for market share, competing for profits. It's a cutthroat relationship between capitalists, and the system tries to impose that cutthroat relationship between sellers of labor power. Uh, as well. So when Marx was contemplating how might we have a non-alienated society, the idea that the market could be the mechanism for achieving that was preposterous. The market clearly needed to be transcended for Marx because for Marx, the disalienation 
of social life. The overcoming of alienation could only be achieved through a radical grassroots democracy. Democracy is ultimately Marx's solution to alienation, but it can't be liberal democracy because liberal democracy accepts the market as the central economic mechanism, and it accepts private property rights as the fundamental liberal right. In other words, it prioritizes private property over the need to live, the need to survive, the need to creatively express ourselves and grow and develop as human individuals, and so on. So the market has to be overcome democratically for Marx. And that can only mean recreating new forms of communal ownership. I say new forms because Marx was well aware that early societies did have communal forms of land ownership. Land very often belonged to the community and individuals had the right to use it. And this was true even of the maybe one-fifth to one-quarter of all of England that was common lands and common fields. For instance, uh, just at the beginning of the rise of capitalism and in the indigenous societies of the Americas, even where they were class-structured, communal forms of property continued for a long time, as they do, for instance, still today among indigenous peoples in the south of Mexico where communal forms of land ownership have not yet been eradicated. And so Marx saw new forms of communal ownership democratically administered as the only way of overcoming alienation. And so as a result, he was very critical of what I've called the first generation of market socialists. This was not really an organized school, but a current of opinion that was particularly noticeable in French radical circles, most represented by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, uh, but also in British radical circles. And these, these early market socialists essentially thought that the problem of the market was monopolistic power. The antidote to monopolistic power to somebody being able to corner the market and charge whatever they wanted for goods. The antidote appeared to them to be free competition. And so the free market became the solution because apparently by breaking up monopolistic power, big conglomerates of power that could control markets in particularly in commodities like foodstuffs, then presumably this would produce fair and just prices. And Marx pointed out two key things in this regard. First, free competition produces monopoly. It's not its opposite. If you set all capitalists together competing in the cutthroat fashion that I was describing earlier, essentially the largest ones over time gobble up the smallest ones. The ones with more resources, better technology, equipment, machinery, and so on, drive out their competitors. And so they begin to monopolize the market. So free competition only produces monopoly over time. It's not a solution to it. But most significantly, said Marx, just getting a new price structure by trying to break up monopolies and therefore, say, lower the price of rice or bread or bananas, whatever, 
Just doing that doesn't change the market dependence of the vast majority. It doesn't change the fact that if they remain disconnected from the means of producing wealth, particularly the land, they still have to sell their labor power as a commodity. They still have to try to survive if they can find a buyer for their labor power on the wages that are offered. And Marx was clear that in market terms, workers can never have the same power as employers in the market. And that's because employers can eventually, can ultimately choose to starve workers out. If workers won't work for the given wages that they're offering, they'll hold out until starvation eventually forces some workers to do that. That's why Marx also recognized that organizing and cooperating among workers by way of building organizations such as trade unions was a counter-market, an anti-market move. It's a move to create new forms of solidarity and cooperation that cut against the tyranny of the market and the power of the market. And that's why Marx believed that there would always be an intense struggle between market forces on the one hand and the forces of social cooperation among workers on the other. One or the other ultimately has to win. They can go back and forth for a long period of time, centuries, in fact. But eventually one is going to win. And so long as capitalism exists, it means that capitalists have been winning most of the battles most of the time. Uh, but Marx's concern, therefore, was to essentially say to the working classes of the time, don't try to improve the market system. Don't be conned into seeing free markets as the solution to your problems. Instead, solidarity and social cooperation by way of building your own organization, such as unions, is the direct route to building a kind of working class power against capitalism. And interestingly, David, someone like Proudhon in France that I mentioned was opposed to strikes, for instance, because he saw strikes as violating the principles of the free market. And so Marx saw the commitment to market principles that the early market socialists espoused as really undermining the kind of collective cooperative and solidaristic organizing that workers needed to do together. So it wasn't simply an intellectual debate. It was a very practical one about the forms of organizing and the political perspectives that were most going to help build working class power against capitalism and the market. Right. So if we accept that Marx was right about this uh, and the socialism that we believe is necessary, possible and worth fighting for should be anti-market, why should it also, as you wrote, as I quoted earlier, why should it also be anti-state? And what does it mean to be both anti-market and anti-state? Because a lot of people, of course, think that the state is the opposite of the market. Yes, and that is undoubtedly the most common misapprehension about Marx's critique of alienated social life in capitalist society. You see, I don't think there's any doubt that Marx sees the market and the state as symmetrical, by which I mean they're part of one set of alienated social relationships. They are interconnected poles, if you will, of alienated social life. And both elements are needed in a capitalist society. Capitalists don't only need the market because they need a series of 
political institutions that will help enforce the tyranny of the market. They need property law that says that if workers take over their places of work, that they have violated private property law, that the police or other armed forces can come in and evict them, arrest them, send them to prison, and so on for doing so. They can enforce a battery of laws that restrict, constrain, and undermine the ability and the rights of workers to organize collectively and cooperatively. So they put a whole system of bureaucratized labor relations in place that are designed to essentially dilute the cooperative activities of workers and their collective power. They produce police forces that can police working class communities, that can police picket lines, that can police social protests by way of demonstrations, and so on. So the market relies upon a capitalist state, and the capitalist market and the capitalist state are inextricably connected. But more than this, Marx went even further. He didn't simply say there can be good states and bad states any more than he believed there can be good states and good markets. Now, it doesn't mean that he thought you could get rid of the market or the state overnight, but he believed that any transition to socialism meant the systematic and continuous dismantling of markets and states, pushing their powers to ever more marginal realms. What does it mean to say that the state is an alienated institution as well as the market? Well, for Marx, the state, as he puts it over and over again, is the concentration of political power outside the authority of the people. It is not the democratic self-organization of a political community. The democratic self-organization of a political community is what actually borrowing from the earlier philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Marx called a voluntary association or a free association. True radical democracy is a free association of people who establish for themselves the forms of political life that they choose, all of which have deeply accountable structures. In a moment, I'll say something about why Marx was so excited to see the Paris Commune of 1871 in this regard. And this idea of self-governing communities as the foundation of democratic life meant that the parliamentary model of the state was a sham because the parliamentary model for Marx as for Rousseau earlier is not democratic, it's anti-democratic. Rousseau says that the English people are tyrannized. Marx just deepened this radical critique. The idea that if you have a set of specialized institutions that are on a day-to-day basis unaccountable to the people, and that's what I underline here, unaccountable to the people, central banks, ministries of finance, labor departments, immigration departments, so on and so forth. We all know that the people in any liberal democratic state so-called today do not control the workings of the central bank, don't control what the immigration department chooses to do. I mean, the myth that in the United States, even Congress declares war anymore is now long gone. I mean, you take the most recent and glaring example 
In France, President Macron forced through the new pension law, quote, it went through parliament without a vote by members of parliament. So, by the way, even had they voted in favor, it wouldn't have been democratic by these criteria. But the point is that if you have permanent, unaccountable, institutional locuses of power that essentially run political and social life on a day-to-day basis, that's not democracy. That's a form of alienation. And in Marx's early writings, you find as powerful a critique of the alienated state as you do of the alienated market. Because as I said earlier, Marx saw them both as symmetrical. This is why Marx uses the famous expression later in his life that the transition to socialism involves the withering away of the state. And Frederick Engels, his lifelong collaborator, picks up and uses this term several times late in his later writings as well. What the withering away of the state meant was a concerted campaign to remove political power and authority from those specialized bureaucratic institutions like central banks and ministries to democratic forms of social and political self-regulation. In other words, you would have to have a flourishing of democratic institutions at work where people are actually deliberating about the organization of their work processes, how they're going to produce the goods that are societally needed. They need to have all kinds of cooperative connections to democratic councils or assemblies that are happening in other parts of the economy to work all that out, and democratic deliberation and rule within their own communities. And this means, yes, a decentralization of political power. A lot more basic life decisions come to rest locally. It doesn't mean there's no need for higher levels of coordination. There would be. But when you're talking about the hospitals and healthcare facilities in a given community, the schools and libraries, the resources that are devoted physically in terms of the buildings, beds, and so on, made available to seniors in communities and so on, there can be an enormous amount of grassroots local control over those things, even though the local level needs then to elect delegates to go to higher levels to participate in decision-making. And this is why, as I said earlier, Marx was most excited when the workers of Paris rose up in 1871 and seized control of the city of Paris for several months by the political structures they created. By the way, Marx was very pessimistic about their odds at the time. He did not think the political moment in 1871 in France was really amenable to the establishment of a durable worker state. I want to come back to that term in a moment as well. But he was thrilled by the creation of a commune state. Essentially, the workers of Paris revitalized an older form of municipal governance known as the commune. They radically democratized it, and they abolished the standing army and replaced it with the citizens' militia. No longer is there a standing army as a separate branch of the state, no longer accountable to the people. They established the principle of recall. If you elected delegates to the commune, 
and any of the commune structures and subcommittees and elements. You could, the people who elected you, David, could recall you simply by assembling and saying, we no longer think this delegate is pursuing the practices that we democratically requested. We replace you or whoever else. They established the principle that an elected delegate would make the average working person's wage. There was not to be any financial incentive to participate as a delegate in the political decision-making process. So it was a form of radical delegate democracy from below. Yes, people misunderstand. There are still representatives. It's not true that Marx thought that the principle of political representation disappeared. You do elect delegates to go to councils and assemblies, but recallable delegates who always have to answer, not once every four years, where they can then flood with advertising and PR campaigns and outspend their competition with millions of dollars budgets, but they are recallable every single day in principle. For Marx, the Paris Commune signified the form of a new communal structure of working class power. And Marx hesitated about whether this should be called a state. If it is a state, it's a kind of state that's an anti-state because it is dissolving alienated social relations. It's dismantling bureaucracy and the standing army. It's creating direct delegate democracy. That's why he was more comfortable with the idea of calling it a free association. But he recognized that it was a locus of political power, but it was one of true popular sovereignty, the sovereignty of the majority, of the working class majority. And so interestingly, Marx was saying from these all of these writings in the second half of the 19th century that political power has an alienated form just like economic power, and the two are interconnected. So to imagine that one is the solution to the other is to grab hold of one side of an alienated social relationship and imagine that it can cure the other. And of course it can't. And this is why the idea that, to use a very obvious example, that the alienated structure of the Stalinist bureaucratic system in Russia could transition peacefully into a market system dominated by an oligarchy connected to the state, not mystifying. It's unfortunate, uh, but we see in a case like what happened in the transition from the Stalinist state to essentially the oligarchical capitalism presided over by Putin in Russia, we see exactly this interconnection between alienated market relations and alienated authoritarian state relations. So Marx is actually saying to us, don't counterpose the market to the state as a solution or the state to the market as a solution. We need to have a vision of the disalienation of all social, economic, and political life. And that means a radical democratization, which is the very inner core of what a genuine socialism means. Great. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, some problems in the present in terms of how people think about these things. Because I think today, probably most people who are disgusted by capitalism don't believe it can be replaced. And many people who do think that capitalism should be replaced have a vision of an alternative in which there are still markets. 
uh, you know, market socialism of one kind or another. And I think in order to understand why the state of affairs is the way that it is, we need to recognize, and you just touched on this in a bit, um, how the USSR, China, and other countries that were organized along the lines that were first developed in the USSR, how those societies were and still are seen as socialism. And then as a result of uh, looking at the, the experiences, the negative experiences there of their so-called economic planning, a lot of people draw the conclusion that there's no positive alternative to market regulation. Yes. So could you say something about you know, why we should disagree with the idea that the USSR and so on were socialist and that the lesson of their failures is that there's no alternative to the market? Because I think that's historically a really important argument that we're still confronted with. Yes. No, you're absolutely right, David. And one of the things that we saw, and it was the context for writing my book against the market in the early 1990s, is that as the old, quote, Soviet-style states, I don't like the term because there were not really Soviets in existence, by which we mean workers' councils, Um, but as those states were collapsing in Eastern Europe, many people on the left drew the conclusion that they were collapsing because socialist planning had failed. Now, I'm going to disagree strongly with that notion in a moment. But if the collapse of the so-called Soviet regimes was due to the inherent problems of socialist planning, then it appeared to them that by default, you could only embrace a market socialism. State socialism, quote unquote, had failed. And so there was a very harsh turn, sharp turn in a lot of intellectual quarters major editors of the New Left Review, for instance, suggesting at the time that really the right-wing critique of planning that had been developed from the 1920s onwards had been powerfully proved correct on a whole series of key points, and that going forward, socialists would have to admit the bankruptcy of planning. And as a result, the only real alternative becomes attempts to tweak the market in more socially palatable ways. We're back to some vision of welfare capitalism, social democracy, and the like. And the problem there is that those experiments are regularly and persistently undermined when the profitability of capitalism becomes an issue. It's why we had the wave of neoliberalism beginning 45 years ago, which essentially systematically dismantled most of the social programs that were designed to buttress and protect people from the worst ravages of the market. So the embrace of the market was a product of a particular period in which a given model on the left clearly was collapsing and disintegrating. The tearing down of the Berlin Wall signified this collapse. And so the period 1989, 1990, 1991, in which all of these regimes in Eastern Europe were collapsing, uh, and really in which the former Soviet Union was transitioning towards the market, that was the context in which some people tried to latch on to a new version of market socialism. The flaw in the thinking all along was the idea that we had anything that could truly be called socialist planning happening in Russia and its satellites in Eastern Europe, because bureaucratic 
domination of the economy is not socialist planning. Some people, I think, have been correct in saying that what the planners of Eastern Europe tried to create was a so-called command economy, one in which the economy obeyed commands from the center. Didn't actually work terribly well a lot of the time, but it did accomplish certain gains early on from a purely technical standpoint, rapid industrialization of Russia, for instance, in the early, uh, well, throughout the 1930s, the decade of the 1930s. You can command huge development projects under certain social conditions through a command economy. But a command economy is not a socialist planned economy. A socialist planned economy begins with the structures of radical democracy that we were just talking about. The delegate or assembly style or council style democracy in which essentially a planning process begins from below. By that, what I mean is communities elect delegates who carry with them a host of information about the number of people, how many are children, how many are elderly, how many have certain kinds of medical conditions with which they're dealing what the availability of existing technological resources is. Do there Are there factories, workshops, and so on that can produce various goods and services? What's the infrastructure of schools and healthcare facilities, childcare and elder care, and so on? Well, of course, once this information is accumulated, it's just updated every year. And based on that, the delegates say, we think we can produce... X and Y amounts of the following goods. We think we need to build this much housing. We think we need to build a new wing on these schools and so on. Here are the supplies we would need to make all of this happen. Now, all of that sounds like a massive operation as you have communities everywhere feeding in this information into a democratic planning process except that in fact aggregating this information and tallying it via basic computer programs is a simple matter it's very it's not terribly complicated what it means is that from below needs resources and capacities are identified as all of this gets scaled to higher levels then delegates report back and they say in order to get the new healthcare clinic that we want this year, we're going to have to put off building the extra wing of the school till next year. And those discussions happen. And the community decides, is that the right prioritization? The extra healthcare facility this year and this wing of the school next year and so on. So you're talking about a process that begins from below at larger scales New bits of information are fed back. We can't do all of these things right right now, so let's prioritize. And a new set of local plans are then integrated into larger scale plans. That idea of socialist planning is the furthest thing from what happened in a place like the Soviet Union or its satellites in Eastern Europe. There you had a group of bureaucrats who wanted to industrialize their societies very rapidly primarily in order to produce state-of-the-art military weaponry. I mean, Stalin was clear about this from the late 1920s onwards. We are going to have the fastest industrialization program in history in order to rearm and to face the threats 
that are coming to us militarily. So what this means is that a commandist bureaucratic structure gave orders as to what the priorities would be. These were not democratically decided. There was no bottom-up set of planning procedures that animated and drove the whole program. And it's why it's a misnomer to describe this as actually existing socialism or state socialism or those kinds of things. Because the problem is to attribute to this some kind of socialism enormously debases the very idea that socialism is an alternative to alienated social, political, and economic power as objectified in the state and the market. And so I'm not prepared to say, well, this was a distorted socialism or or what have you. It was not a form of socialism. And the only real way we get ourselves free from the false counterpositioning of either state worship, as Engels called it, or capitulation to the market in the form of market socialism is actually to renew Marx's most radical critique of the state and the market. It allows us to then speak to an entirely different way of organizing social and political life and economic life that still holds to the vision of disalienation. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, disalienation means radical democracy from below. Yes, and I think it's important to really underline what you've said about the nature of the so-called planning in the USSR today, because uh, given the ecological crisis, there are some people who, for quite understandable reasons, uh, are becoming more interested in planning as an alternative to markets. And unfortunately, some of those people are then drawn to a version of eco-socialism that thinks in some way that the USSR gives us some kind of model, even if they don't endorse the you know, mass repression and t- state terror and so on. Um, I mean, even an, an interest in a very problematic book that was published recently, Half Earth Socialism, does this in its treatment of, uh, of planning. One question that uh, I'll just uh, bring up before we move on is, do you think there'd be any role for markets in a society in transition to socialism? Or what's the, the place of markets within that transition? Because, of course, as you said, it's not a question of abolishing markets with one fell swoop. Exactly. Yes, no, that's 100% right, David. The erosion of markets is going to be a process. The idea that having overthrown the power of capital in the state, that a new workers' commune type political association could just eliminate all market transactions uh, is just unfortunately a reckless idea. It's just not going to be possible overnight disalienation of economic life will be a process. However, going back to what we said earlier, you could make huge strides in dismantling the labor market very, very quickly. And this means decommodifying human labor power. In other words, it would not be a generational project, for instance, to say that food, shelter, education, healthcare, and basic recreational and cultural goods come out of the market, that we decommodify them, that rent and mortgages are abolished, that housing becomes a social right, and communities will allocate communal property in housing and organize the building of new housing on non-market lines based on need, not on the market. 
as you begin to decommodify housing, food, education, and healthcare, you, in other words, start to say that people become no longer market dependent for their survival, that their survival is a social good, and that the society guarantees it free of market transactions. You know, as I said to people before, it is the public library and truly public healthcare principle generalized to other goods and services. It's entirely possible to do it. The logistics, the technical logistics are not difficult. The political capacities are the key to get there. Once you remove basic human survival from the market, you're now transitioning to a society that is not market regulated, in which human survival doesn't depend on earning the money to buy my housing and buy my food and buy my health care, buy my education, buy my access to cultural goods and the like. But it would still probably be the case for quite some period of time that there would be lots of areas at the margins again, going back to our earlier discussion, where it simply wouldn't make sense early on to try to somehow socialize all of these sectors and transactions. Much more important to socialize healthcare, housing, food provision, education, cultural amenities, and so on. Make sure you do that and you do that well and you you do that right. But there might still be people who have all kinds of interests in certain kinds of goods that are not central to the kind of life that we're describing. And whether those have to do with particular recreational activities, they would need much more high-powered computers for some of the kinds of sound design or scientific investigation that they want to do in their time outside of social labor. And so they need a better laptop than I need. Um, But society hasn't yet generalized these really super powerful laptops as a good accessible to all because the inputs of human labor and so on required to produce them uh, are not generalized yet. Or people who are just absolutely prepared to forfeit certain goods in their lives because fine French wines from a certain region of France really enhance their sense of well-being in their lives. And so to me, it's entirely reasonable to imagine that until you had literally a state of abundance, and I want to come back and talk about that term in a moment because it has ecological implications, but a general state of abundance in which the basic goods of everyday human social reproduction, including cultural goods and so on, have, are, are, no, are not scarce. There are going to be marginal areas of scarce goods out there. You know, for all kinds of reasons, people will probably move to Kindle-type readers over time uh, for all kinds of ecological reasons. But if I'm an old fossilized person who loves, as you see behind me, physical books, um, I think there could still be niche markets in physical books, for instance. But remember our earlier discussion, markets that are on the margins of economic life are a very different thing from markets that regulate 
social and economic life. And so that's really what we're talking about. Now, let me say a few things about abundance, because I was not careful enough 30 years ago in against the market to clarify this point in a way that I would today. I said it in passing, but I was not as careful as I ought to have been. Abundance in the terms in which Marx used it was fundamentally about a diversity of human needs that could be, that were being and could be regularly met in the course of social life. So Marx talked about the need for music as something that is truly human, for instance. In other words, that human needs are historical. They're not just our basic biological needs. But never for a moment did Marx want to suggest that the basic biological needs are not foundational to other historical needs. And so abundance begins with the abundance of unpolluted air to breathe, oxygen to be recycled through the human bioorganism. It absolutely foundationally requires fresh, clean, available supplies of water that are being reproduced regularly through the ecosystem. It requires land that is not being massively deforested the way, say, the Amazon is, land that is being properly, organically replenished for future generations as well. And we now know from the works, particularly of Kohei Saito and others, that Marx was really engaging with these ecological questions around organic chemistry and the natural environment and so on late in his life. So abundance begins with the availability of a natural environment with which human beings can interact in a healthy and sustainable fashion. And it's a foundation of any notion of socialist abundance. And it's honestly, in Marx's historical materialist terms, absurd to imagine that we would be talking about a plethora of physical commodities while the ecosystem dies. And I think Sato and others are clear that, in fact, Marx is grappling with all of this late in his life. And so all these questions, which are obviously for an entirely different discussion, could we imagine a degrowth communism and so on, get put on, on the table there. Certainly what we can say is that there would be radical degrowth in a whole variety of areas, even while there were growth in others. There will have to be growth in solar power. There will have to be growth in wind power, for instance. There will have to be massive degrowth in carbon fuels, military hardware and investment. There will have to be massive degrowth in automobilization, I think generally, not just in terms of fossil fuel burning vehicles, but I think in terms of electric cars as well, as much more ecologically sustainable systems of public mass transit essentially marginalize the automobile in all kinds of ways for day-to-day life. So at a minimum, there would have to be radical degrowth in a whole series of areas, while there would be growth in areas devoted to environmental sustainability and the inherent well-being 
of human life. Um, as someone with elder parents, there's no question in my mind, this society massively underinvests in elder care, for instance, and the dignity and well-being of seniors late in their lives. So I, I would see that uh, as a growth area. Overall, would this amount to degrowth? I suspect it would, even though it's a conversation for another time. So I want to emphasize that abundance in Marx's terms by which we make certain things no longer scarce means most fundamentally that fresh, clean, sustainable water supplies no longer become scarce, that fresh air to breathe no longer becomes scarce, that renewable forms of energy are no longer scarce, and so on. Uh, and I think, yeah, it does mean forms of cultural development. I, th I don't think computers disappear, for instance. I think what they can contribute even to the socialist planning process we were talking about. It's too valuable and too important, as well as to other kinds of scientific, mathematical, and aesthetic kinds of ventures. So when we talk about sustainability, we're also talking about abundance. And I think this requires a way, going back to your earlier point, of really challenging some of the categories that we inherited. So that you're right, Anybody who really thinks about how market capitalism is destroying the ecosystem is going to pose questions about responsible social planning. I just think you get there eventually. But we need, therefore, to salvage the concept of democratic socialist planning from the Soviet-style experiences. There is an alternative, and, and Marx is clearly laying out rudiments of that. Marx never wanted to lay out more than rudiments because of his enormous faith in radical popular democracy. The idea that the people of the future will solve problems in ways that none of us today can adequately visualize. But it doesn't mean you can't lay out what I'm calling rudiments. And clearly there are some rudimentary notions of socialist planning that we need to preserve and develop. I'm very glad you said that about abundance, because I think in some of the contemporary discussions, we're seeing that, unfortunately, some people who identify as Marxist thinkers have not escaped from categories or a way of understanding abundance that is actually still a bourgeois way of understanding abundance. And I think what you've said is very helpful for thinking outside that and extricating ourselves. Um, and the only thing I would add in is I think we have to also consider in an international sphere, what does it mean to address those questions uh, in a situation where you have such extremes of um, underdevelopment and, you know, how the, the question of to what extent a society in transition towards eco-socialism that it was coming out of an advanced capitalist society would actually have to make sacrifices in order to um, redistribute wealth on a, on a global scale. I 100% agree, David. I don't think the socialist left has spent enough time talking about what would have to be, I think, a, an ethical political principle. And I'm picking up particularly on Gramsci's use of the ethical um, as a Marxist principle, an ethical political principle of reparations. And people forget that the root of the term is to repair that reparation is about repairing damage that has been done. And the imperialist structures of global capitalism have wreaked enormous damage throughout the global South. And we in, who are living today in the capitalistically developed 
parts of the global north, which are humanly underdeveloped, but are capitalistically developed, we will have an intense obligation for global reparation. And it, it, it is something that we need a lot more time and energy devoted to discussing uh, if we're to avoid all of the temptations to retreat to a parochial kind of localism. There will be empowerment of localities in the kind of decentralized democratic socialist planning I'm talking about, but there has to be also a higher level of globality that uh, that comes with this. So one last thing I want to talk about um, with you, hear your thoughts about, um, is connected to a book that I think more than any other book um, related to planning, listeners will have, some listeners will have read this book, um, People's Republic of Walmart, How the World's Largest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism by Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rosworski. And that book emphasizes the extent to which planning happens inside the largest firms in contemporary capitalism. And the authors argue that, in their words, the glimmers of hope for a different way of doing things are foreshadowed in the sophisticated economic planning and intense long-distance cooperation already happening under capitalism. We must democratize and expand this realm of planning so that planning would be, in their words, a building block of a rational economy based on need instead of being woven into an irrational system of market forces driven by profit. So I'm interested in particular in any comments you'd like to offer about this way of thinking about socialist planning, which really emphasizes the importance of computers in making socialist planning possible, what some people call digital socialism or algorithmic socialism. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you could share a few thoughts to wrap up on the strengths and weaknesses of that way of thinking about planning. Yes. And I like your closing formulation there, David, the strengths and weaknesses, because I don't approach those statements one-sidedly. What they grasp correctly is that large corporations already do an enormous amount of technical and economic coordinating that have nothing to do with market mechanisms. They actually plan how their global operations will operate. And then they use a variety of bookkeeping mechanisms that are basically designed to just to get favorable tax status for what they're doing, where they book these transactions. But these are not, even though they cross borders, they're not market transactions in any meaningful sense of the way. They just invoice them. And so commentators who get that are right that large multinational firms allocate and distribute all kinds of resources without going through the market. They also do go through the market to buy a whole variety of goods and services. And there is a limited sense and I do highlight that word limited, in which we can learn certain things from some of the technical processes that are involved in that kind of coordination of allocation and distribution. But I think it's really crucial to remember a famous formulation by Marx in which he says that, that the anarchy that happens between units of capital between different corporations, essentially. Their relations are anarchic because they're unplanned and competitive. They're each in different ways trying to outdo and even defeat the other in the market. That external anarchy is joined to an internal despotism. And that's Marx's term, despotism. The organization internal to the enterprise is despotic. The central command structure beginning with the CEOs, that are running the firm. That central command structure is not democratic. 
in any fashion. The conditions of work of people in sweatshops, warehouses, and so on, who are providing the goods and services that keep this planning operation going, are exploited in the worst alienated and oppressive conditions imaginable very often. So we've got to be clear that while we can see certain technical procedures that could be subjected to a kind of workers' control, the despotic structure has got to be destroyed. And if we lose that commitment to workers' control as foundational to all of these planning processes, then we're in a lot of trouble. And again, it's why we've got to be really clear about the use of computers. I, I mentioned it earlier. Their computational power is fabulous. You know, what they can do with just, you know, masses of data is terrific. And you and I, with notepads, uh, couldn't accomplish some of it in our lifetimes. So that's that's great. But this computational power still has to be organized under conditions of democratic control. And we've got to be really, really clear that no technocracy, no scientific technical stratum with specialized skills in algorithmic equations, for instance, can be allowed to hijack a planning process. And so what my big cautionary note to a lot of these discussions is don't forget Marx's claim about the internal despotism to the corporate structure. And it's got to be dismantled. So for sure, it's important to point out that more goods and services move through non-market means across, between, within corporations, for instance, on a daily basis, than actually go through markets. That's, that's an important point, just in terms of our empirical understanding of why non-market mechanisms are possible. But those corporate structures are still something that are antithetical to radical democracy from below. And what worries me is that often I see a celebration of this without the critique of despotism, without the warnings about technocratic visions of socialism, uh, and without the emphasis on workers' control and workers' power from below, which is going back to our earlier discussion, that's the core of disalienation, that, that's the core of moving to a genuine socialist democracy. Thanks very much. Totally my pleasure, thank you, Dave. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>